Well, we jumped back into the book of Romans last week, and I said we were just going to park it right there on top of Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, for several weeks, so that we could carefully and slowly answer this one big question, because it's an important one. Why do so many people reject the free offer of the gospel? And why isn't this good news? We call it good news. Why isn't this good news more attractive to people than it is? Well, before we go back to answering that question, let's get our bearings again by reading the passage. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. We're actually going to catch the last paragraph in 9 as we head into 10. Romans chapter 9, and I want to see you turning in your what? Bible. Look at it. I want you to see God's word for yourself. And today, if you've never been convinced before, today's going to be that day you're just going to like, oh my goodness, I should have brought a Bible. We're going to go other places. We're going to be turning to places in the Bible. And when you see it for yourself, it's so much better when you can see it, hear me say it, you see it, you hear me say it, and you can go back to it again yourself. And you don't have to believe Brad Bigney, but you see God's word. Bring a Bible. We use them at Grace Fellowship. Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by what? Say it. Faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, he's quoting from Isaiah now, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him. Now we know that Isaiah wasn't talking about an inanimate object, a rock, but a person. Who's him? Who are we talking about here? Say it louder. Jesus. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who, what? Believes. Let's pray together. Oh God, take your word today and cause it to run and be glorified. Lift up your son, Jesus Christ. Where there's confusion, bring clarity. Where there's darkness, bring light. Where there's error, bring truth. Lift up Jesus and your good news of righteousness from you to us through your son today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I told you that I I think I see four reasons tucked down into these verses. Four reasons why so many people balk at the free offer of the gospel. Dig their heels in. And we looked at just the first one last week, so let's review before we add to it. Number one, I said the reason so many people balk 
is simply you just might not think you need to be saved. It's a showstopper. There's, there's an offer going out for something that you don't think pertains to you. Don't need it. Why are you looking at me? Why are you talking to me this way? I don't need it. It's the same reason the Jews fought with Jesus so much during his earthly ministry. This is not a new problem. Think people thinking they're not needing it. That's what was going on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, through Jesus' earthly ministry as they fought back and forth. They just didn't think they were that bad. And neither do we. And so last week I hit it head on. And I tried to drive home to you the fact that until, until you willingly, humbly, and completely throw yourself into the category of, say it, say it louder, sinner, and own it. For yourself, I'm not talking about someone else talking you into it, arguing you in that direction. Say, get in there, get in there. That's you too. Okay. No, you own it. You're there. You own it. Until you willingly, humbly, and completely throw yourself into the category of sinner. There's no hope for you. Because you won't be interested in the remedy of the gospel and a savior if you haven't owned the diagnosis of death, separation, sinner, in desperate need. And remember how I described this category? I made it up, but I like it. I said this category, this moment that every single person has to experience at some point. If you're here and you're a Christian, you had this moment at some point. Whether you articulated it out loud or internally, it exploded. I called it the, oh, I am a sinner. We're not talking about, have you ever heard the word sinner? Yeah. You think there are people that fit that category? Oh, yeah. They're all around us. They're everywhere. No, no. It's that moment that you are smitten by yourself and you say, oh my goodness, even though I grew up in the church and even though I haven't done all these terrible things and even though, even though, even though, even though, even though, even though, for the first time ever, I get it. I've heard it, I've heard it, I've heard it, but now I get it. Oh, I am a sinner. And it leaves you undone. That's what it does. It leaves you undone and desperate for a savior. So it's a really good place to be. If you're sitting there and thinking, undone is not what I'm interested in. And I don't like talking about myself like a sinner. Oh, listen to me. This is a great place to get. And it's where you must get. So let me encourage you. I don't have time to unpack it all again. But if you didn't hear last week's message, it's the first step in the direction of real life in Christ and eternal life and salvation. Get the message and listen to it. Get online and listen to it. This whole, whole matter of, have you come to the point yet that you're willing to say, oh my goodness, it's talking about me. Those verses are talking about me. That is me. Let me give you a second reason that people balk and dig in their heels and resist the free offer of the gospel. Number two, it's this. You might already be so busy doing all kinds of God stuff. In other words, you might already be caught up in a flurry of religious activities. That's what kept the Jews from seeing their great need for a savior. Get this. The Jews were so busy doing God's stuff, they missed God's son when he came in flesh. 
It can happen. It can happen today. It could be happening to some of you sitting in this church where I do lift up Jesus Christ. But listen to me. Please understand, just because you're sitting in a church that preaches Christ and preaches grace and doesn't mean you get it yet. You can hear it, hear it, hear it, and t- still put a spin on it that's short of and apart from what God actually teaches. This has to be revealed to you. God has to do a work in you for you to understand, oh, it's by grace and it's in Christ and it's not my religion. You can just switch from one church to another saying, well, I used to go there and they told me to do these things. Now I go here and they say, do these things. I know I'm going to heaven, Brad, because I'm in a small group. And you talk about that all the time. That puts me way ahead of those losers on Sunday that are running a small group. You tell me I should serve, I'm serving. You tell me to give some money, I give some money. It doesn't matter where you go, you could find a way to put a look what I'm doing, spin on what you're doing and miss the Savior in the middle of it all. Look at Romans 10, 2 again. Paul says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Isn't that a good thing? Would it be a good thing to have a zeal for God? Yeah, far better than being hostile, denying God, attacking God. There's plenty of that going on. Far better than trying to find creative ways to marginalize God and push him to the edges and not think about God. But listen to me. You can have a zeal for God and still be at a dangerous place in your life because you could have a zeal for God and still not know God. You could have a zeal for God that creates a lot of heat and activity and froth and motion and busyness that can actually keep you from submitting to the knowledge of God and who he really is. You could be busy way on down the path of doing a bunch of things for this God that you have created in your mind. But this God has nothing to do with the one true living God. Because we don't get to define him any way we want. We don't get to decide who we want him to be. Here's how our world thinks. If they allow for God, you get to decide who you want him to be. There's just many paths to God. There's this God and there's all these different choices and roads and paths and ways. Let's not, let's not get upset about who he is. As long as you're being zealous, as long as you're going hard after what it is that you say you believe, then it counts for righteousness and, and you'll get into heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches, my friend, and I'm your friend to tell you that. And I know it's not politically correct or popular today, but you could be zealous and sincerely wrong about who God really is, and it will land you in hell. You could be sincerely wrong and very zealous. Zeal and sincerity alone are not the litmus test for truth. Zeal and sincerity alone are not the litmus test. And so Paul says, let me be the first to say, they are zealous for God. But they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They lost God in the midst of all their religious activities. It can happen and it can happen to you. What about you? Let me ask you, have you lost God in the midst of all the things you think you're doing for God. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever really had God 
in your life. Well, that's different. See, religion can take place and everything's external. The list I'm following is outside of me. The God that I say I'm following is outside of me. It's not very personal. Folks, the Bible talks about knowing God. We're not talking about religion in these messages. We're talking about a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That is radically different than lighting candles, swinging incense, getting baptized, taking communion. Any number of things you might do, 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 and still not know God. Are you cranking your way through a list of religious activities focused on things I should do and not do? Do more of this and less of this. Do more of these things and less of these things. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Whenever you begin to talk about eternal life, real life, your conversation shouldn't go far at all before it comes to Jesus Christ and stays there. John chapter 17, turn there. Keep Romans 9 marked somehow because we're going to go back there before this message is done. But go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I want to show you what I'm talking about. Jesus is at the center of it. It's a relationship, not just religion, not just a list. Jesus. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Now look at me a minute. What hour is he talking about? If you read the Gospels, you'll see him regularly saying, my hour has not yet come. Don't tell anybody what I just did. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's talking about the purpose for which he actually came to this earth to solve our biggest problem. Did he heal some lame legs, open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, feed hungry bellies? But was that why he came? He did all those things to confirm this is not an ordinary man. Look what he just did in multiplying the bread. Look what he just did in raising. He he raised three different dead people. And those people he raised went on and died again, right? And the people that he fed still needed to find a way to grow crops and make bread. And he didn't feed them eternally. All these things were just attention getters to say, listen to what he says. Look at what he does. So you'll listen to what he says. And what he had was the message that I am the way, the truth, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. The hour The hour has come. He came to go to the cross. He came to give his life. He came to perfectly keep the law, which we could never keep. Perfectly satisfying a holy, just, righteous God's standard and demands. And then gave his life as the final, all-sufficient, sacrificial lamb. That's why John, in earlier chapter 1 and 2, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he came to do. And to do that, he had to give his life in payment for our sins. And he had to rise again from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and hell and death. The hour 
The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. Verse 2. And as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Eternal life is a gift that has to be given to you. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't perform. You don't impress God. Give eternal life. Now, he's going to clarify some things for us. Like cut right through the, the fog and the confusion. Jesus, what are we talking about? What is eternal life? What is eternal life? Oh, I love it. Verse 3. And this is eternal life. Oh, tell us, Jesus. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Folks, eternal life is knowing God. It's a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Our world talks about there's many ways, many paths. There is not because no one else did what Jesus did. And no one else is who Jesus is. He's fully God, fully man and paid the final all sufficient once and for all price. That they may know you. We don't know him. We're estranged from God. You're born an alien enemy of God. You don't know him. You know there is a God, but you don't know him in a relationship. And you know him through his son, Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on the earth, verse 4. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now, right there, we know that it can't be the work that God the Father gave him to do can't be feeding people. Were there any hungry people still standing around right then as he made that statement? Absolutely. Any people still tapping a stick, touching the side of a wall that can't see? Absolutely. The work that God gave him to do was to solve our biggest problem. That is not a hunger problem, an economic problem, a social problem, an earthly relationship problem. It's your sin problem that separates you from a holy God that you could never have bridged that chasm. You could have never been good enough or worked hard enough or done enough religious activities ever. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. By sending his son. I finished the work which you have given me to do. This is eternal life that they may know you and your son Jesus Christ. Not a whisper. What is eternal life? Not a whisper of things we need to do or not do. He doesn't give us a checklist or a spreadsheet of religious activities to incorporate into your life. Nope. Listen to me. Activity for God. Never guarantees knowledge of God. You can be very busy doing a lot of good things and still be clueless and ignorant as to who God really is. If you don't get anything else today, get this. We reach God and we come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, not through any good works or religious activities. Let me show you how the gospel and this good news of eternal life has Jesus right at the center of it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's not on the periphery. He's not on the edges. He's not, oh yeah, also of course Jesus is part of this. No, Jesus is not part of it. Jesus is at the heart of it. The start of it. The whole of it. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. Without Jesus, we have no hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
If we had all afternoon, and I wish we did, I would actually read chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. It's marvelous. But we'll go with chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So right there, Paul tells us, right? You share the gospel. Have you ever talked to someone about this good news? And they didn't seem to think it was such good news. Just like lights out, disinterested, even sometimes hostile, whatever. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, whose minds the God of this, who's the little God of this age? Little G right now, Satan. God is still sovereign over his wickedness and we can't explain it, but God is allowing him a measure of freedom to do what he does. Whose minds the God of this world has blinded. Now look at me a minute. He doesn't try to blind us from religious activities. In fact, he throws a spotlight. He, our enemy, throws a spotlight on religious activities and says, yeah, go, 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 go. Go, grab that list and go, go hard, go. Later in life, change list. Not that church, but this church, but still a list. Go, go, a more accurate list. He will not push you away from that. But listen to me, what he does not want you to see that he works overtime seeking to cast darkness and blindness about is Jesus whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of who? Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then he gives us an analogy. Well, first he says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. Analogy, verse six, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. So he reaches back to the creation of this world, to a physical creation of light where God spoke light into into dark, just spoke it. Let there be light. And there was for the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Here's what has to happen for you to be a Christian. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is it found? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Folks, that's why, listen to me, while our world, I believe, will continue to tolerate a measure of generic God talk, They're going to have to put up with it because every human being just still knows there's a God. And so we're going to see more of bumper stickers like coexist. Sure, let there be a God, but let's all play nice and just stop talking about distinctives. Stop being so intolerant. Just say there's a God, but you can do whatever you want. Go any way you want. Trust in whatever you want. We're all heading there. You cannot stop talking about, say his name, say it again. Don't talk God. You start naming Jesus, that's when people get upset. But folks, it's Jesus that has power. It's Jesus that sets people free. It's Jesus that is our savior. It's Jesus who satisfies God's demands. We can't stop talking about Jesus because he's our only hope. Jesus, Jesus. 
These verses tell us at the very heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian and the gospel and salvation is that it is not religious activities, but it's that God shows you Jesus and he's beautiful to you. He's lovely to you. He's dear to you. You know you need him. You want him. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And our enemy works overtime to blind you not to church stuff, not to activities, not to the Ten Commandments and I'm trying to keep them, not to do nice and be nice and treat people the way I want to be treated. Yes, he'll say, yes, 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 be a nice person and land your nice person self in hell because you never thought you needed Jesus. Jesus. Well, listen, the Jews fought with Jesus so much and they weren't living like there's no God and oh, they just still didn't know God. K-N-O-W. Because they were so busy with their own religious activities and fervor and service to God, thinking this is going to win them favor with God. God, look at what I'm all, all I'm doing that other people don't do. God, look, 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 look. Has there ever been a time in your life that you moved from a system to a savior. There ever been a time in your life that you move from religion that has to do with externals? And here's the deal, folks. Religion is always spelled D-O because it's focused on what you're trying to do for God. While Christianity with the gospel at the heart of it is spelled D-O-N-E because it's all about what God has already done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, that you can never do for yourself. That's why Christianity is radically different than every other religion, every other ism, every other sect, every other cult. You say, but do people still do this? Do people still work and and think that their religious activities will find them favor before God? You better believe it. I sat next to a man on a plane on his way to Toronto. And I started asking questions. Found out that he's a university professor. But then when he found out I was a pastor, which by, by the way, I try to put off as long as possible. I try, to, I try to just look so normal. I am just so normal. And there's no need to ask me what I do because usually when they find out, it's like showstopper. We're so done and they're so ill at ease, but not this guy. When he found out I was a pastor, he actually really got excited and began to tell me about all the stuff that he'd been doing in his church for the past almost 20 years. He'd been a deacon, he'd been an elder, and right now he was meeting with his pastor with a small group of men, reading great books like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and discussing it. I'm like, this is great. I don't run into this very often. Marvelous. But then there was a lull in the conversation. And so I decided to go ahead and ask him my all-time favorite question that I ask everybody. Folks, if you want to ask a question that really gets it at the heart of what someone is trusting in, don't say, do you go to church? Do you believe in God? Stop it. Ask this. If this plane were to crash, now if you're not on a plane, drop that part. (laughs) This can still work on the sidewalk at the gym, but it's really good on a plane. If this plane were to crash instead of landing in Cincinnati and you stood before God, which you will, The Bible says we're all going to stand before God. And God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, what I often hear, and I heard it this past week because I asked someone, was, I don't know. 
That's a good question. I've had people look at me and say, you ask hard questions. <laughs> this guy got excited. I don't know, it wasn't his answer. He's like, he got excited and then he confused me because he got excited and started talking about his wife. We hadn't talked about his wife till now. And so it threw me a bit and he said, I used to think that my wife was doing so much in the church, teaching, serving, working, giving, that surely she will have some surplus grace points that she can transfer over to me. I'm not making this up. I was like, oh, you know, I'm still trying to look inside. I'm like, oh, that is so wrong. That is so wrong for so many reasons. And then I was so relieved because he said, but I stopped thinking that way. I'm like, hallelujah, because that ain't right. And I'm expecting him to say something like, because I realized we can never get grace points. No one can give you grace points. You can't earn anything. It's about Jesus and what he did for us. But that's not what he said next. Instead, he said, but I stopped thinking that way because I got involved just as heavily in serving in the church. So much so that I figure I have enough grace points of my own now and I don't need to trust in hers. I, I know my mouth must have fallen open with my little chewed up Delta peanuts and cookie that I was choking on at that moment. It's like, folks, listen to me. There's no human being who's ever earned any grace points from God. And there's no human being that can do for you or give to you anything that will change your standing before God. We're all going to stand there alone, stripped and naked, not just physically, but of all that we thought we were doing, we got nothing. And no one can give you something for that moment. We will all be spiritually bankrupt and have to flee to Christ. What about you? If I asked you that question, if God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't like candles here, but you might say, I'm in a small group. I host a small group. Children pee on my carpet downstairs. <laughs> I come early and grind coffee and serve. I mean... I give money. I, I don't know what you might say, but you could still do something like that. Listen to me. If what comes out of your mouth isn't Jesus and then Jesus and then Jesus, you're in trouble. I don't deserve to go into heaven, but he's done for me what I could never do for myself. He gave me his robe of righteousness and he applied all his righteousness to my, he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. I don't deserve it, God. But based on that, receive me. And he will. He will. You see, the reason Paul's so passionate right here about this is because this is personal. Paul's not even in his mind thinking, oh man, there's so many people like this. I hope I can help some people. Paul lived this. This was Paul's personal testimony. Paul was zealous for God, but ignorant of God. He was very religious. He knew the Bible and yet still didn't know God. Look at it with me. Galatians chapter one. Let me show you the turning point for Paul where he recognized that I'm spiritually bankrupt. And again, I want you to see what you will see in this is it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Galatians chapter one. Beginning in verse 14. 
Galatians 1, verse 14. Notice what the emphasis is. We start right off with a pronoun. Where's the focus? I and I advanced. He's focused on what he's doing and does he think he's doing good or bad? Real good. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my content. What's he doing? Comparing to other people. I'm doing so much more than so many others. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. What a glorious word, verse 15 starts with. And it's a word that has to have played into your life if you're here and you're a Christian. But when it pleased God, not, but when God saw he'd done enough, When God saw he got to a certain level, when God saw he had the right list doing all the right things, no. But when it pleased God, based on the pleasure of God, not anything you're doing or not doing, no merit of your own. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his what? Grace to, oh, notice it's all about Jesus, to reveal his son in me. It's not to give me the correct list, to point, to reveal his son in me. That's salvation. That's new life. That's when you begin to be in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the way Paul describes this experience makes much of God and has God as the primary change agent on the move. And we are simply recipients of his good grace And mercy, when it pleased God, God had to move first. And it wasn't based on anything he saw in you or about you. Who separated me from my mother's womb. What Paul is doing is reminding every single one of us, you came into this world and when you sucked in air into your lungs for the first time, you were completely dependent on God. You could not have created yourself or brought yourself into this world. And guess what? New birth is the same way. You can't make it happen. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, to call me through his, what? Grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's grace. It's a gift. To reveal his son in me. When God saves you, he doesn't bring you face to face with a list of things and rules and regulations. He brings you face to face with his son, whose name is what? Jesus, Jesus, what is it that we don't know that we desperately need to know that is so counterintuitive to us us regarding spiritual things? Because Paul said in Romans 9, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What is it they don't know and we don't know because it's so counterintuitive? It's this, folks, that God saves sinners by grace alone. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. Through faith alone, you don't earn it. You trust him. In Christ alone, you don't need a system. You need a savior. That is radical and counterintuitive to the ways that we think. And that's why Jesus Christ has been central to Paul's entire argument. Oh, please know, Paul is not now just getting around to Jesus here in Romans 9 and 10. Oh my goodness, it's been about Jesus all through his letter. Jump back to Romans 5. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Romans 5. Just one of many places we could go. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. 
For if by one man's offense, who was that one man? Adam. Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift. It's a gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. You get eternal life only through the one, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. No other way, no other way. And I know it's a tough pill to swallow for us on a human level because even though the world is filled with wickedness and brokenness, we still see, you can still see it out there, some outstanding examples of sacrifice and zealous activities being churned out in the name of God. But please know, none of that saves anybody. None of it. And don't even hear me saying these people aren't sincere and passionate, but you can be sincerely wrong and passionately way off course, still ignorant of who God really is and what he's done. There are people, think about it, there are actually people involved in religions and cults, quite honestly, folks, that their level of sacrifice and zeal puts us to shame. Puts us to shame. But it's not what God is looking for. It still gets in the way of them actually, notice how Paul worded it in Romans 9, submitting to the righteousness of God because they're so busy trying to do their own righteousness. I've read articles where there's a group of Filipinos that every year, Around Easter time, practice crucifying and mutilating themselves in an effort to atone for their sins. I myself have seen with my own eyes, I've been to Rome, Italy twice. I've seen with my own eyes Roman Catholics crawling on their hands and knees up a gigantic staircase near the Vatican. Believing because they've been told that for every step that they get on with their hands and knees and pray work through their beads, it's going to knock nine years off the time they'll spend in purgatory. Who hasn't seen the fresh, cut, wholesome-looking young men going two by twos in white shirt, tie, Mormons on their bicycles, giving two years, a Mormon young man gives two years of missionary service to spread a message that's not even truth. But folks, it's all motivated by what they think they need to do to gain favor with God. And so Paul tells us, he's amazed. Paul is amazed in Romans chapter nine that Gentiles who do not pursue God, not even looking for God, attain this righteousness because it's a gift. And the Jews who pursue it, but they pursue it based on the law as a basis of works, look how good I'm doing, look how good I'm doing, look how good I'm doing, miss it. Because they will not submit to the righteousness of God. What do you have today? Where are you? Do you have Jesus in your life? Or do you have a religious spreadsheet of some sort and you're busy, 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 busy? What's in your hands See, so often, if you're still focused on your own righteousness and what you're doing for God, means your hands are full and your eyes are focused in all the wrong places. Nor- normally, you, you, it's all going to you. And you're always pointing, whether out externally or not, to my religious activities. Folks, when the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ comes alive in your life, you stop pointing with one hand at all your religious activities 
and you just lift two hands in desperation for a savior and in worship of who he is and what God's done. It's not all about me. Not all about me. Thank you, God. Where is the righteousness of God found? Don't miss this. He says they miss it. Where is the righteousness of God found? In Jesus Christ. Don't stumble over that, my friend. Don't be offended by this. You need a savior. People stumble over that. They say, but look what all I bring. Look at all I got going for me. Look what I bring to the table. Can it be this plus Jesus? Can it be this plus? Uh, God will meet me halfway. Folks, until you are spiritually bankrupt and you throw yourself completely, willingly, humbly into the category of sinner and say, I got nothing, God. I'm not ahead of anybody else. Save me. Until you get off the religious treadmill of my activities that I'm doing and recognize that it's exhausting and it's getting you no closer to God than the day you stepped on it. And say, I don't need a system. I need a savior. I need a savior. I need a savior. You cannot earn it. You receive it. But to receive anything, you gotta have empty hands. And to receive this, you have to humble yourself and see yourself as God sees you, a sinner. I want to ask you to bow your heads in the final minute. And I want to ask you, where are you today? You say, but Brad, this church preaches Jesus and grace and the God. I know. But I know this is so counterintuitive. You can be sitting in this church and still not understand. What do you have? A spreadsheet of religious activities? A sense of, I am ahead of so many people, or do you have a savior? Have you experienced the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? You can have that today. You can experience the righteousness of Jesus Christ today. His righteousness can be applied to your account, and God can see you as clean, forgiven, accepted by faith, by faith. You simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is who he said he is and he did what no one else could do to pay for your sins. Oh God, thank you for your good gift. Thank you for not just giving us the 10 commandments. They smite us and they expose us and they weigh heavy over us so that we'll lift our eyes and look for a savior Show them your son. Reveal your son to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.